Hi everyone, welcome back to the Harbinger China Tech Podcast. Today we have joining us Alan Jiang, who is the head of Southeast Asia business for OFO, the world's leading station-free bike-sharing company. He oversees the company's strategy and operation in the Southeast Asia region. Previously, Alan was at Uber for four years, helping to launch Uber's business in China, Malaysia, Vietnam, and Indonesia. So today, Alan first starts by sharing a little bit more about his story starting off at Uber before transitioning over to Ofo. He tells us more about how bike sharing is drastically different from ride sharing, and he talks about the impact that companies like Ofo have on the cities themselves that these bikes uh, are located in. Alan also talks a little bit more about Ofo's global strategy and how its Southeast Asia efforts fall into that. So Alan, you know, I understand you're currently the general manager for Ofo in Southeast Asia, but even before joining Ofo, you had quite a bit of a career at Uber where you helped launch a number of different markets in Southeast Asia before becoming general manager of Indonesia. So actually, why don't we start there? Can you tell us a little bit more about your experience with Uber? Yeah, thank you, Adam. Uh, so Uber was a very exciting journey for me. Um, I joined Uber, uh, I was there for about four years, um, and I started as a operations manager in LA, kind of managing the supply side of the business. Frankly, I thought I was gonna live in LA for a while, and I actually had moved there uh, for the opportunity from Boston. Um, but seven months into the job, you know, Uber started expanding uh, quite rapidly internationally. Um, and one of the countries we were looking to uh, you know, explore was China. Um, so I had an opportunity to go out and help out with a the launch there. Um, and from then on, I ended up staying uh, in Asia. So I was in China um, and then went down to uh, launch Uber in Malaysia and Vietnam. Uh, and then ultimately ended up in Indonesia uh, running that business for about three years. Um, at the time, Asia, you know, was very new to me. I'd been to China a couple times uh, with internships in college, but uh, Southeast Asia was completely new. Um, so it was a very interesting adventure to kind of explore um, all those different countries and cultures um, and figure out how to grow a new business there. Yeah, thanks for that. And, you know, certainly for Uber, it's been quite a tumultuous year. Is there anything you can share, you know, from your perspective on the front lines you know, as a general manager, uh, in Southeast Asia, anything you can share with us to provide more insight on that? Actually, that's a, it's a very interesting question um, because the, uh, the timing was uh, very interesting. I actually saw most of this, actually almost the entire year, uh, as an outsider because I left Uber in February. You know, while I was at Uber for four years, um, it was a very exciting journey for me, um, but I definitely wanted to take a few months off and kind of think about um, what the next step was. Um, so, uh, you know, I was planning to take a couple of months off, travel a little bit in the U.S. and, you know, catch up with family and friends there um, and do a little bit of uh, traveling around Southeast Asia for, for leisure and not business. Um, so that's what I did. Right, right. Okay. And clearly that brought you to OFO. So tell us a little bit more about your experience there. I mean, quite a bit of uh, overall experience, network that you built in Southeast Asia and clearly a very capable skill set. You know, how do you apply all of that to OFO? Was it a straightforward transition? You know, what was going on in your head at the time? Um, I have to be honest. Uh, I wasn't thinking that much about bike sharing uh, at the time. Um, bike sharing was a concept that I was aware of uh, quite early on because a lot of Uber people in China had actually joined um, you know, OFO uh, after the Uber and DD merger. Um, right. So a lot of my ex-colleagues had been very early on in the bike sharing craze, um, but frankly, you know, when that happened, uh, I didn't really think it was going to be something that was going to go outside of China. But it was it was 
um, kind of around the, I think, July or August uh, point of time um, when the bike sharing opportunity kind of uh, came, came onto my radar. And uh, so I kind of thought, hey, you know, maybe it's something that's worth exploring. Um, and so I, I was living in, in Indonesia at the time. Uh, so I actually flew to Singapore, uh, went to uh, try out some of these bike sharing apps, um, you know, Ofo, Mobike, and Obike. And I was like, wow, this is actually, you know, very, very convenient service. And I could actually see it working in Southeast Asia. Um, so that's kind of when my interest was, was peaked. Um, did a little bit more market research, um, you know, tried to answer that age old question of, are these companies ever going to make money? <laughs> Which I think is one that's uh, frequently in the headlines. And I kind of, you know, did the math and, and realized that actually, you know, it could be a very uh, viable business model. Um, so I became very interested. Um, kind of went through the process and uh, ended up joining OFO in October. Okay, cool. Well, first of all, congratulations on that. <laughs> Going from Uber to another unicorn company like uh, OFO. And so before we get to what you currently do at OFO, I mean, you're the general manager of Southeast Asia. Last time we caught it, you mentioned that it's, uh, it's really an area, strategic area of focus for them in terms of expanding that, that market. But um, just for our audience, you better understand uh, Ofo, you know, could you actually give us a comparison between what, what Ofo does versus Uber? Because, right? you know, to my knowledge, it's not as simple as saying for Uber it's cars and for Ofo it's bikes. There are some pretty apparent differences there. Um, yeah, sure. So, uh, you know, Uber was a uh, ride-sharing platform uh, where, where you take out uh, your phone, you push a button, and a car gets summoned and you know comes to your doorstep uh, and takes you somewhere. Um, I would say... You know, it's a very convenient way of getting around town. Um, and because of the data and technology uh, in the app, we actually were able to bring that cost for consumers down while also providing uh, drivers with uh, higher earnings um, than they would be able to do driving uh, in an alternative uh, service. Um, right. So really, it was it was kind of providing that level of price and convenience to consumers um, and while also providing for drivers. Um, I would say OFO is... A little bit different um, or very different um, I think you know there isn't really a comparable service um, for OFO today um, I guess the closest comparison would be to ride your own bicycle around um, but I think in a lot of countries uh, biking is very popular um, but there's also a lot of countries where biking is not very popular um, and I don't think you know OFO is going to come into a country and completely you know uh, you know, take over everyone's transportation uh, habits and everyone's just going to be riding around on bikes all day. That's that's definitely not what's going to happen. Um, and it's not what we're trying to aim for. Um, what we see is bike sharing is a really, really convenient way of getting around the city for short trips. So zero to three kilometers. Um, and what happens is it becomes a very good complement for uh, the city's public uh, transportation infrastructure. Um, so... It's a last mile solution for public transit, whether that's buses or MRTs. Um, and, you know, citizens of the city also have the option of walking, driving their own car, taking a ride sharing service, taking taxis. Um, so all of those options are kind of available. Um, and bike sharing is kind of just a piece of that, um, which really I think is, you know, probably the most convenient piece in terms of getting around for sub three kilometer trips. Um, right. And really the... And really the convenience lies in, you know, the price is probably, you know, one of the most competitive ways of getting around the city except for walking. 
Um, but then there's also the convenience piece of being able to see a bicycle in basically high density demand areas. Um, so, you know, very popular areas are, you know, last mile solutions for MRT or bus stops, for example. Um, and instead of having to walk three kilometers home or instead of having to, uh, you know, hail a ride sharing app, which will be more expensive and maybe takes five to ten minutes to get there, um, the bike becomes a viable alternative. Right, right. Thanks for that. I think another major difference is that with uh, Uber and with, uh, you know, car sharing, ride sharing, uh, it's not just a matter of the vehicle being different, the car versus the bike, but for cars, you also have a, have a driver. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about the implications of, you know, having a driver as part of this overall network that you build up versus Ofo, where it's just uh, the end user uh, picking up the bike and, and, and using it? I think, I think in terms of the business implications, um, it's definitely, there's a much bigger focus on supply chain um, at OFO. So that's one of the big challenges, um, additional pieces of challenge that we have to work on as compared to ride sharing right. is, um, is manufacturing, logistics, and actually, and, and dealing with the hardware. Um, you know, we, we work a lot, we have a hardware engineering team as well as software engineering team mm -hmm. um, to work on building that product out as, as good as possible for consumers. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And and you know, back to that point, it seems that uh, you know, Uber is extremely valuable company. The concept of ride sharing because you can build up these network effects on the two side of market with the drivers on one end, uh, and then the, the consumers on the other. The more drivers, the more supply, you know, the better experience for the end user. So it increasingly becomes more of a winner takes all market for bikes and bike sharing. Uh, again, a little bit different. I understand your point about how it's harder uh, in a sense that you need to manage the entire supply chain, but. You know, can you tell us a little bit more about the network effects that, network effects that have been generated uh, with uh, OFO? I certainly think that there are benefits to um, having more bikes on the street. Um, I think one of the biggest value propositions for bike sharing is the convenience of being able to see a bike very nearby uh, and, and then just ride it away and then you know park it uh, at a designated parking spot and not having to um, you know, walk very far in uh, either end of the journey. Um, I think, you know, having to, if we have to walk one kilometer to simply find a bike, it kind of defeats the point of having the bike sharing service in the first place. Um, so certainly I think that having more bikes in the city is actually uh, also driving a lot more ridership. Um, you know, if we, you know, went to Beijing, for example, and there was only 100 bikes scattered around the whole city, I don't think anybody would use a service because it would just be simply too hard to find bikes. Right. Um, so I think it's really finding that sweet spot, um, you know, definitely putting in too many bikes um, and oversupplying the market uh, is definitely uh, not going to be uh, ideal either. And it's kind of a waste of money, <laughs> I think, for, uh, for bike sharing companies. Right. Um, but I think, you know, the same can be said for ride sharing. And, you know, if there's too many drivers on the platform, then none of the drivers will make money. Um, right. So I think uh, in both cases, there is definitely that sweet spot where, you know, adding um, supply drives more demand up to a certain point, um, but not beyond. Okay, cool. And, you know, following that point, can you talk to us a little bit more about uh, implications of bikes on the cityscape itself? So, you know, if people think about ride sharing or think about autonomous vehicles, think about, oh, there's a less of a need to have my personal car. And as a result in the future, maybe that, that could change, you know, even streets or uh, how cities are, are designed or maintained. So for bikes, um, I imagine, you know, it kind of plays to the overall theme as well. 
to us a little bit more about its impact on cities? Uh, that's a very interesting question. Um, and I think addition of the transportation option of a bicycle in a city can definitely have a huge impact on the way that cities think about building out the transportation infrastructure. Um, I think as you know, cities around the world get more and more populated, um, you know, everyone is trying to invest in building out more public transit. Um, it's the most space efficient way of moving people around the city. Um, but one of the biggest questions around public transit is how to solve that last mile solution. And, um, you know, I guess pre-bike sharing, the last mile was either going to be walking or some form of car transportation. Um, and, you know, walking three kilometers is not very fun. Um, but if it's, uh, but then the alternative is you need to build MRT stations that are very close together. Um, so people don't need to walk that long. Um, or if they're very far apart, then people end up taking cars for the last mile. Um, and taking, and, and neither of which are, you know, very, very good options. Um, so the bike sharing option, uh, kind of can help a lot with, uh, has a lot of potential to kind of help with city planning in that sense. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also very exciting to see cities moving towards um, bike-friendly city planning. So that's, you know, building out bicycle lanes and generally making the city easier to bike. Um, I think right now some cities are definitely ahead of the curve on that, and there's definitely some cities that are um, only still trying to step into that game. Um, but I think it's very exciting um, and we see that opportunity is is engaging with cities and providing them with, hey, you know, there is this option of a very viable way to make bicycles easy to use in your city. Right, right. Yeah, that makes sense. And I, and I was wondering, like, can you layer other services on top of these rides? And what I mean is, uh, for example, if you're an uh, Uber driver, you can also deliver food. So Uber Eats. Um, and uh, in some companies in the U.S., there's Postmates, for example, or some other courier services where folks are literally biking around a city to deliver products and goods because it's actually more efficient to bike around than to drive around a congested street. Um, you know, in those cases, uh, there's actually, I guess, a third party uh, on a bikes and helping deliver stuff. But you know, in the case of O4 Mobike or other uh, bike sharing services in China and beyond, it's usually the end user, end consumer who's biking around trying to get from point A to point B. So in that context, are you guys thinking about other types of services to layer on top of the, the ride itself? I think at this point of time, you know, we're very just focused on uh, building out that our core business of rolling out bicycles and having it be a convenient way of getting around the city for short trips. Um, you know, Anecdotally, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, a lot of food delivery uh, drivers are currently using bicycles already, um, since uh, it's probably faster in terms of being able to cut through congestion. Um, it's also cheaper for them in terms of you know not having to pay for fuel expenses. Um, and I think I think in general that level of convenience uh, we have seen a lot of bike trips starting to replace short trips, whether that's for delivery drivers or even for you know the average consumer in cities. Right, um, right. And, you know, to the extent that we actually, uh, we, we did a study with uh, one of the environmental agencies in China um, and found that the fuel consumption in China uh, year over year in April actually has declined by 6%. Wow, yeah, that's really incredible. Um, I imagine typically the, there's increased year over year given that there's more people who are consuming and getting around uh, using energy. 
So, okay, well, beyond the thought of um, layering services on top of the rides themselves, the rides themselves actually generate data as well. So could you tell us a little bit more about how Olfo thinks about data and how you're able to leverage it? Yeah, so uh, so we're talking a lot of data um, on the way that traffic flows kind of move through the city. Um, so, you know, we're, uh, and we study that data very carefully in terms of how we actually deploy our uh, bike supply. Um, so we manage our supply on the ground uh, very carefully. Um, so we have a large team of people on the ground who kind of move bikes from low demand areas to high demand areas, um, collect broken bikes, bring them back uh, to the warehouse for repairs. Um, and so, so we have to use our data to make sure that our team on the ground is being very efficient about the way they manage that supply. Another thing that we're thinking about uh, that could be very interesting with the data um, is that we collect a lot of information about the way that the traffic flows through the city. Um, and that has a lot of uh, potential usage in terms of the way that uh, a city can plan their infrastructure. Right. Thanks, Alan. And understood that uh, you, know, you guys are creating not just a valuable service for the end user, but with uh, greater implications on cities and the environment around, uh, around us. So let's get back to your role itself, actually. I mean, you're clearly the general manager of Southeast Asia. So I'd love to learn a little bit more about um, you know, how you guys are thinking about global strategy and where Southeast Asia fits in. Mm -hmm. So 2017 has really been a very exciting year for OFO um, in terms of uh, how quickly we've been expanding internationally. Um, so uh, we've hit a new milestone in terms of uh, global trip growth. Um, and that's 32 million trips in a single day. Um, so it's a, it's a very, very large and fast-growing business. Um, and we're starting to expand very quickly internationally as well. Um, the main areas, we're, today we're in 17 countries. Um, the main ones uh, being in US, Europe, um, and across APAC, um, especially focusing on uh, Southeast Asia and uh, markets outside of uh, China right now. Um, so in Southeast Asia, we're in, uh, which is the region I'm managing, uh, we're in Singapore, Malaysia, and Thailand. Um, and we're very, very excited um, about this region um, and seeing the growth numbers that are coming out of it right now. Um, I think one of the big questions that a lot of people ask for Southeast Asia is, hey, you know, I think that there's not a lot of bike sharing uh, or, or biking culture in the region and maybe it's something that's uh, very exciting for China but you know considering you know the weather or the traffic it feels like something that may not work very well in Southeast Asia um, I think you know I think that was definitely a concern that I had as well before joining OFO um, but I think after kind of seeing the growth numbers um, and uh, the way that people are using the service I'm you know getting very very excited about the region um, and I think you know at the end of the day uh, I think biking in Southeast Asia hasn't been popular because it wasn't convenient to do so. Uh, but when we start seeing that bikes are easy to kind of access um, and the cost of uh, actually biking around the city is very cheap, um, then I think it becomes a very exciting opportunity. Um, so kind of going back to your question about what we're trying to achieve globally, um, I think it's really trying to plug in with cities and provide bicycles as a viable alternative for getting around the city. Um, you know, as I said earlier, we're not trying to replace any form of transportation, um, but really just becoming that option for people in the zero to three kilometer range. Um, and I think that means, you know, 
figuring out how to provide, like find out where the high demand areas are, making sure that we always have uh, bikes readily available um, and making sure that we can sustainably offer those bike services um, to people at a very low price. Right. Got it. Yeah. So the overall global vision and what you guys are trying to achieve makes a lot of sense. What you mentioned about Southeast Asia, it's very good to hear that there's, there's promising growth there. Um, another question that figure that our audience would be interested in is that I mean, Southeast Asia is not just one country. Uh, it's the entire block of multiple countries comprising Indonesia, Vietnam, Thailand, Philippines, Singapore, Malaysia, etc. So how do you think about navigating uh, the different countries and how they, um, you know, how do you guys approach each of them separately as part of the overall SEA block? Yeah, I think Southeast Asia is a very unique region in that sense, um, that there are so many different cultures and languages. Um, and I think that's one of the challenges that a lot of uh, international companies um, face when kind of uh, tackling this region. And maybe even, you know, one of the mistakes uh, that are made is tackling the region as one block. Um, but really, you know, each country operates very differently um, in terms of the way people do business. Um, they have varying levels of infrastructure maturity, um, whether that's, you know, transit or, you know, banking or, um, you know, telco. Um, and I think a lot of these impact the way that we do business. So I think you know, we need to make sure that we localize very carefully um, in each country we go into. And that starts with hiring a local team. Um, so every country that we go into, we definitely want to make sure that we have a, a local team running that business. Um, and, uh, you know, that's a local GM, a local ops person, a, lot, a local marketing person um, who really understand the nuances of that country. And, uh, you know, they're the ones who are going to be running that business. Okay, cool. That, that makes sense, Alan. And uh, last question for you is uh, around, um, you know, I mean, Ofo is obviously one of the biggest uh, bike sharing players out there, whether in China or around the world. Another major one is Mobike, you know, followed by another long tail of other players. So when it comes to the Southeast Asia strategy and what you guys are seeing, you know, how are you guys um, operating there versus you know, Mobike? And do you have a sense of what they're up to? I think the thing that we've really, uh, you know, one of the things I really learned at Uber um, and one of the things that I think will be a very big factor um, for us as bike sharing kind of grows across the region um, is we want to have a razor focus on the product experience for customers. Um, so really kind of figuring out what it is that customers want, why customers use our product um, and, and being able to provide that to them. So I think for bike sharing, our focus is really going to be on making sure that we can provide uh, the service at a convenient and affordable rate uh, for consumers. Um, and so we'll be you know, ha working a lot with data in terms of figuring out where to put bicycles. Um, we'll be having a, you know, a very large team of people on the ground uh, as an operations team to make sure that bikes are constantly being uh, moved out of low demand areas and into high demand areas uh, so they can be used very efficiently um, and working on uh, developing those processes. Um, so I think ultimately that's kind of the feedback loop and we want to make sure that when people use OFO, um, they know that we're the, you know, the most available, most convenient uh, service that they can use. Yeah, so, so thanks for that. But you know, I think the, the, the thing is still there's OFO, Mobike, two of the biggest giants in this uh, in this area. 
And uh, when you look at um, you know previous examples, whether it's Uber or other type players, usually uh, yeah, it's either you know one Trito, uh, like one massive leader, uh, where it's more of a winner takes all market, uh, or in some cases there's consolidation. So in China, you see this quite often. You got Dianpian Meituan, which uh, merged a while back, and then obviously Didi absorbed the uh, Uber in China. So, what are your views on eventually consolidating with uh, Mobike or some of the other bigger players out there? Um, I think that bike sharing and ride sharing are very different spaces um, in this regard. Um, I think that in the ride sharing space, uh, you know, we often saw competitors who were subsidizing more than the cost of a single trip. Um, and when you pay incentives to drivers or riders that can amount to more than the cost of a ride, you basically have a endless, um, like a bottomless pit of where you can you know, throw money into. Um, I think for bike sharing, it's a very different story. Um, you know, no matter how low the cost of the bike is, um, like even if it gets to zero, um, it doesn't cost you money for that individual trip to happen. Um, so I think that in that sense, it's very different from the competition uh, that happened in ride sharing. Um, and, you know, at this time, I think, you know, OFO, we see a lot of potential in this space and we're not really looking at any consolidation right now. Okay. But it might be a possibility down the road. Uh, I won't rule anything out, but I don't think it's on the cards right now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Fair enough. Cool. Well, hey, Alan, thanks so much for your time. W wish you and OFO the best of luck. And I must say, uh, on behalf of myself, you know, my team, we ride Opal, Mobike, other ride-sharing. Uh, I mean, well, actually, no, just Opal and Mobike. <laughs> Extremely valuable service. So thanks so much for all of your efforts. Thank you for your time, Adam. No worries. Thank you for having me. Okay. Thanks. Cheers. See ya.